This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and welcome today. I have a very special guest, the New York Times bestselling author, Cory Doctorow, has a fascinating new collection called Radicalized, and it's four different novellas all in one place, and they certainly touch on what's going on. Corey, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. I think there's a, a disconnect in science fiction, especially with folks that don't read it very often, because the things are too futuristic. People don't connect with it. What makes your stories different is they hit so close to home. You don't have to be a diehard fan to uh, to appreciate them, and especially in this collection. We'll go over each one of the novellas separately, but uh, some really compelling stuff. So it really hits home. That, was that part of your intention to make it more accessible to everyone? You know, I, I think if there's a thing that distinguishes the kind of work I do from, from some of my colleagues, it's a real commitment to uh, using computers in stories as a, a way of or, or, or as a, a kind of rigorous matter, right? Rather than trying to um, bend the capabilities and limitations of computers for narrative convenience, I try to find ways to tell stories where the actual capabilities and limitations of computers are the thing that the story turns on. And although, you know, obviously most people aren't computer scientists, I think that there's a, a, a verisimilitude that emerges when you tell stories in that way uh, that feels very immediate and very accessible, you know, urgent in a way, because we're living in a moment in which our, our inability to come to grips with those limitations and capabilities is, is really putting us in crisis. And so, you know, telling stories about that, that, that are trying to hew to these underlying theoretical limits uh, and, and possibilities mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, oh, I hacked the mainframe and then I broke the cryptography and now the AI is talking to me, which is your basic crummy computer-based science fiction plot, I think really makes the stories come to life. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. Were these stories that you had written previously and kind of combined them together, or did you set out to put them together? It's kind of neither, actually. Uh, these stories were, were basically my therapeutic intervention for my, my acute case of uh, <laughs> Trump derangement syndrome. Right. I was I was really <laughs> having a, uh, as many of us having a tough time with the, the, the news coming at us so fast and furious and so much of it seeming to be such terrible news. And writing is the way that I work through this stuff. So I wrote the first of these stories, uh, Unauthorized Bread, and my publisher was really excited by it. They were like, this is the most timely thing we've we've seen. It's the most timely thing you've written. This was in June, and they said, we'll bring it out in September. We'll just rush it into production. And and I said, well, you know, while you've been reading it, I've, I finished another one, the story model minority. And they said, oh, my gosh, this is even more timely. We'll bring it out in October. And I said, well, you know, I've just finished a third one now, uh, and I've got a fourth one on the drawing board. And they were like, I think we need to do a book. And so it's a it's a somewhat unprecedented thing. They they treated uh, the book like a uh, like a novel, even though it's, it's technically, I guess, a short story or novella collection. That's uh, not a thing mm -hmm. that, that uh, often happens. Uh, those projects tend to be very modest. It's rare that Tor even does short story collections. They, they tend to be smaller boutique houses. I think the last one I saw from them may have been um, Ted Chang's Stories of Your Life and Others, uh, from which the, that movie Arrival comes, as well as many other really excellent yes. Chang stories. 
and so, you know, they really gave it a, a very hard push. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the tail end of a two-week book tour that took me to a couple of countries in several states. And, wow. um, Good. and they, they're, they're, they're really taking it seriously. And, and for me, that's very gratifying. Yeah, let's talk about unauthorized bread. I'm a, I'm a Cuban immigrant, so anything about immigration, and, excuse me, and especially that it's very much in the news right now, does appeal to me for a lot of reasons. Uh, if mm -hmm. I were coming into the country today, I think I'd have a harder time than it was when we came here in the early 60s. But um, yeah, that's talk about an issue that is on everyone's mind right now. And it's, it's also kind of been forced upon us a little bit, too. I, obviously, the, the news today is the inspiration. How did you, uh, how did you attack this story? Well, uh, you know, the unauthorized bread, I, I should mention that I, too, am an immigrant uh, and the father of an immigrant. Nice. And also that, that, you know, my father came into Canada where, where I was born. He came into the country as a, uh, 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 a displaced person, essentially as a refugee. And so, you know, this is also mm. very key to my story. And, and like you, when I, when I see the xenophobia on the rise and hear people demonizing immigrants, it's very hard not to take that very personally and not to see myself and my sure. own family story reflected in that. You know, the, the premise behind unauthorized bread is that you have refugees whose subsidized housing turns out to be a kind of awful funhouse of bad Internet of Things technology uh, that, it, you know, smart appliances that are designed to, to take whatever money they have and just suck it straight out of their wallet. So the toaster will only toast authorized bread and the dishwasher only washes authorized dishes and the, the laundry system only washes launders authorized clothes. And it's a way of forcing people to, to buy from company stores the way inkjet printers do or the way that iPhones do for your apps. And, and giving the company ongoing control over your uh, economic mm. life and your freedom of choice. And, you know, this is a campaign that I've worked on for a long time. I, I work with a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We're actually suing the U.S. government to invalidate the law that protects the business model, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And a lot of the times when I talk to people about this stuff, they don't necessarily see the urgency. And, and, and it's one of those problems where, you don't really realize how serious it is until you find yourself in the thick of it. I mean, this is the reason that so many of our bad technologies are first tried out on the people who have the least social power. If you, if you kind of work out the shakeup problems on kids and migrants, prisoners, poor people, welfare recipients, mental patients, and so on, then, then you can then sort of move them up the socioeconomic ladder to blue collar workers and to, um, you know, gig economy workers and then white collar workers. And then before you know it, we're all doing it. And so, you know, I'm not a great believer in the predictive power of science fiction, but I do think that if you want to get a glimpse of your likely technological future, just look at the terrible things we're doing to kids or to prisoners or to other technological users who don't get to complain. And that's probably where you're going to be yeah. in 10 or 15 years in terms of your technology use. And so these people, they, they, they find themselves with these appliances that are, you know, leeching all of the cash out of their pockets. And that's bad enough, but then one day it all just stops working because the kind of company that thinks that this kind of thing is a good idea is also likely to be the kind of company that's run by, um, you know, overconfident financial engineers who engineer themselves into bankruptcy the way that we've just seen with, uh, you know, Toys R Us and Sears and um, Gymboree and so on. And, and the only thing worse than having appliances that spy on you and, and suck money out of your wallet is appliances that just stop working altogether but this spurs them to learn how to jailbreak their devices, to, to open them up and get them to do what they want to do instead of what the company shareholders would like them to do. 
And this is a kind of new golden age for them. This, this woman, Salima, who's a Libyan refugee whose parents were killed in the crossing, becomes a, a kind of mm-hmm. um, den mother to the kids of the building who uh, then go around and, and fix everyone's appliances by, by breaking them, by, by undoing their, their shackles, uh, which is great until the companies start to come back out of bankruptcy. And then they face uh, real significant problems because the telemetry on these appliances might detect their tampering. And since uh, tampering with these systems is a potential felony under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the Digital Money and Copyright Act, these guys now face deportation back to the countries that they have fled in fear of their lives. And and it becomes a kind of life or death matter, which, you know, it may sound extreme, but it's it's the kind of thing that that poor technological choices uh, have a habit of doing. You know, um, Facebook's decision to force everyone to articulate their social graph and to uh, limit our privacy options became the basis for militia checkpoints in Syria and Egypt, where they would check to see who you were friends with and decide whether or not to execute you on the spot. Yeah, that's, wow, yeah, that's, that certainly hits home. That's quite a story. And, you yeah. know, the, the next, in model, model minority, what, I, what grabs me right away is, you know, it, answer, it asks the question, what if a Superman-like figure does arrive here? And really get involved <laughs> with us, mm-hmm. uh, and and I guess kind of project his own morality upon us. And what would that do? In this case, he's trying to correct uh, police corruption, but it's like um, you know, it's like it's like the, the, the famous uh, saying: "Who watches the watchers?" On uh, Star Trek mm-hmm. episode, who's who's policing the policeman? Kind of thing, and to have somebody do that, interesting. Uh, idea for a story. Uh, how did that one come to you? Well, you know, I had just read Matt Taibbi's astoundingly good book about the murder of Eric Gurner by NYPD cops who were subsequently got off with, mm. without any, uh, uh, any significant meaningful punishment. That book really, it, it, it aroused a lot of different things to me. One is this sense that I think many of us have felt in our lives that when we read about a great injustice, that if only someone had stepped in to stop it, if only, you know, some individual had taken action to prevent it. And I think that's a normal reaction, but I think it leads us astray because it leads us to view these as problems of, of individuals rather than societies uh, and, and problems where, where individual cops are doing the wrong thing and individuals are being victimized as opposed to systems that allow that to happen. And, you know, Superman himself, he arises out of that impulse. You know, Superman was created by horrified Jewish kids in Brooklyn, you know, Siegel and Schuster, one of whom was a Canadian, who, um, uh, you know, who are watching the the horror of Nazism unfold across the Atlantic and who kind of, you know, imagine this like unstoppable kind of a golem figure who would go and interpose his, his strength between the world and Nazism. This is something that's beautifully dramatized in uh, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, the, the book by Michael Chabon. My family, we're, we're white passing Jews who were racialized when, they first, when we first came into contact with North American culture. My dad was treated as a racial minority and, and you know, racially discriminated against. But whiteness is, it's, you know, one of the things about whiteness is it's not uh, an objective phenomenon in the world, right? Poles were once not white, Italians were once not white. And, and Jews became white. Not only did Jews become white, but it, it, by and large, the, at least the conservative wing of, of, of Jewry threw its lot in with white supremacy. 
And this is a recurring pattern. This is something that happened in Germany in the run up to the war. A bunch of Jews decided that they were uh, that they were Germans, right, and that their racial identity was safe within German society, and that was true right up until the rise of fascism. And one of the reasons that there was so much complacency from the Jewish establishment is they viewed themselves as the German establishment, and they couldn't believe that that the German establishment would ever turn on them. But you know, the the last people in the white supremacy boat are the first people pushed out of it. And, you know, I think this is a thing that Cubans have also discovered as, as well as other people oh, yeah. who can be racialized and deracialized. And, you know, I think a bunch of, of white passing Jews in, in America had a wake up call a couple of years ago when a bunch of dudes in Nazi uniforms and Confederate regalia started uh, marching down the streets of Charlottesville, chanting Jews will not replace us. And it, and it turns out maybe that, you know, our, our natural solidarity doesn't lie with white supremacy but with racialized people and, and the solidarity struggle for, for justice for all racialized people everywhere. And so this is the thing Superman discovers, you know, or the American Eagle, as I call him in my story. He thinks he's white. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, you know, he thinks he's served America for 150 years. At this point, he's a white American man and he's safe in his privilege. And what he discovers is that the minute he defects from white privilege, that it's very easy for America to turn him not just into someone who's not a white man, but not even a human. Uh, and that all of a sudden he's a, he's a dangerous alien and not, a, and not even a human being. And one of the yeah. things about becoming, you know, having these revelations, right, deciding that you've been on the wrong side all along and, and throwing your lot in with justice struggles is that there is an enormous temptation to, for people who become allies to make the story about them, to ask racialized people, well, uh, how can I stop this, right, as opposed to, uh, listening, you know, where we, we demand, we make the story about us. At the same time, we rarely want to answer the question, what took you so long? And both of those are the questions that Superman has to confront. And one of the things that, that I think is a nice bit of judo in that story, if I do say so myself, is that um, <laughs> Superman realizes that it's not his story, that one of the things he realizes and that the reader realizes is that the hero of the story is the African-American man who suffers uh, a New York police department beating and not the all-powerful alien who decides finally to take a stand against it. That's awesome. You know, as a Cuban immigrant, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, there there's prejudice because of your background. There's prejudice because of the language you speak. And it's mm-hmm. uh, Charlottesville, I thought, took us back almost a hundred years easily and it was like wow haven't we learned anything but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah mm-hmm. it's uh and then of course it wasn't denounced which hurt even more so it's yeah. uh it's it's and it still hasn't been denounced even now all these good years later on both sides as they say yeah oh god god yeah <laughs> yeah nazis are good not in my book <laughs> not in yeah. my book All right, well, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with Corey Doctorow talking about his amazing collection, Radicalized. Hello, this is Michael Emerson of Lost. And when I'm not crashing around in the jungle or performing an obscene experiment, I listen to Sci-Fi Talk. I hope you will, too. Back on Sci-Fi Talk with Corey Doctorow. And I'll tell you the the story the collection is named of is is next, Radicalized. And it's, um, it's an uprising that I guess originates in the dark web 
And it's interesting, it's against the insurance companies, literally a man who's trying to secure funding for an experimental drug that could save his wife's life. And uh, boy, that certainly is not something that's not easy to relate to in that sense. And any inspiration for this story or just something you saw that you wanted to write about? Well, you know, as a, as a someone who's a migrant, one of the things that you get is uh, you get to... to see and, and really start to, to find the blind spots that the society that you've moved to has, things that are, are largely, I think, invisible or, or at least not quite as vivid for the people who've lived in them all their lives and grown up with them. When I moved yeah. to the United Kingdom, I was, I, it took me a couple of years, but one day I woke up and realized that British is the literal opposite of plumbing, right? And that despite the fact that they are an advanced <laughs> civilization that once had an empire, they can't figure out how to get water pressure above the first story. And, you know, that is a significant blind spot for the nation. By the same token, you know, Americans have a, a frankly bizarre debate about healthcare and guns, both of which are things that yeah. pretty much every other developed country in the world have figured out, and that uh, Americans just seem to be incapable of, of coming to consensus over, you know, and, and not least because uh, it, it goes without saying, but people make a lot of money off of that debate, but there's that there's a lot of cash to sure. be made there. So, so I, I wanted to write a story that asked the question, um, what if like a, a grieved, traumatized white dudes, instead of murdering their ex-wives and brown people going to mosques, started shooting the healthcare executives whose callous bureaucratic decisions doom the people they love most in the world to die horrible lingering deaths. Um, and, and you know, mm. as, as soon as you ask that question, it's a little weird because it becomes it becomes uh, hard to answer. Why is it that that's not already the case, right? How is it that uh, there has been so much forbearance uh, among people who have been so traumatized? Yeah. One of the things that that uh, you know that that this brings up is the way that we visualize or or, or conceptualize the whole idea of radicalization and trauma. That that our radicalization narrative goes like this: some people out there have um, radical ideas, some people are radicals, the people who get too close to those radicals become radicalized, right? That they, it's like a contagion. Um, they, they uh, you know, the, like patient zero makes them radical. I remember when, the, um, when there were riots in my neighborhood in London, in, in Hackney, uh, mm. the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, said, don't look to sociology for answers to this. This is criminality, pure and simple, which kind of raises this question, like, what is criminality, pure and simple? Is it like, is it like pollen and it gets on you and it, and it just, you know, it grows there? Like, where does, where does this come from? Is it a, is it a, like a birth defect? Like, like what, what is criminality, pure and simple when it's at home? And, you know, I think that there's actually a, a pretty good literature on this and it's, it's, it's not hard to know where criminality, pure and simple comes from. Uh, it, it comes from trauma. You know, there's a really good Boston mm. University study of suicide bombers in the occupied territories that found that it, rather than the model of suicide bomber that we've historically had, which is that someone who's so blinded by their ideology that they're willing to die for it, the, the median suicide bomber is actually someone who's been so traumatized by their life that they are suicidal. And that suicidal, um, mm. uh, you know, that suicidal feeling makes them vulnerable to having someone come up and whisper in their ear well, don't let it go to waste. You know, take revenge on the people who benefited from the trauma that you suffer from. 
when you look at, at, at uh, radicalization through that lens, uh, all of a sudden things start to look very different. You know, um, we, 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 instead of trying to address the kind of um, radicalization, we should be really addressing the trauma that leads to it. You know, prevention is always cheaper than, than cures. But, you know, our, our approach to this stuff, it looks a lot like, um, you know, uh, the, the world's crummiest apology. You know, I'm sure we've all had one of these apologies that goes, uh, I'm really sorry you're angry at me. Like, could you be less angry at me? Like, I don't plan on changing my behavior or anything, but it would be really nice if you could be less angry. And, you know, our response to trauma is, I'm really sorry you're traumatized. We're not going to change the thing that traumatized you. But have you tried being less traumatized by it? When people are traumatized by things that are legitimately traumatic and do things that are terrible in the service of stopping that trauma, there's an incredible temptation to be sympathetic to them because they may be monsters, but they're your monsters. And one of the things that we always have to confront in the wake of social change, which always involves struggle, right? Rights are never given, they're only taken, is that some of the people we cheer for are in retrospect monsters. And so really digging into that is the kind of thing that you can do in fiction and really can make readers confront some of the really uncomfortable stuff that comes out of it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's another powerful story right there. Yeah. I mean, it just, mm. man, it just covers so many issues that we're struggling with right now. Um, mm-hmm. in the mask in the mask of the red death, interesting, you tackle survivalism and also the, I guess the counterbalance of community, interesting mm-hmm. idea to kind of, uh, go, go towards those two things. Talk about that one. That sounds like another uh, kind of writ from the headlines kind of story, if I can quote Dick Wolf here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I have been long skeptical of the whole enterprise of, of prepping and survivalism, not least because, as you say, if the goal is to survive, then you're not going to get there by hiding in a hole. Not unless you think that the problem is other people. And really, I think the answer is always going to be other people. We live in a complex technological society. And when the lights go out, you kind of want to be in the place where the doctors and sanitation experts and mechanics and engineers and social workers and just the people of goodwill who will dig through the rubble to help you out all are instead of hiding off in your mm-hmm. in your luxury bunker with your thumb drives full of Bitcoin and your MREs and your gemstone quality uh, precious stones. And that that fantasy that, um, you know, the masters of the universe can cower in their bunkers, wetting their beds while the, the poors eat each other. And then, you know, the survivors get civilization going again. And then the rich can emerge and assume their rightful place as kind of a Frazetta painting warlord who can, you know, have a harem and, and mm. rule as God intended. That is such a, a toxic impulse. And it reveals so much about the people who have it. And if, if you're really concerned about survival, you're concerned about helping your neighbors not running away while they die. And so Mask of the Red Death, it takes its title from this famous Edgar Allan Poe story. I'm a big Poe fan. I yes, it does. After him. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's my oh, cool. poesy, P-O-E-S-Y, you know, like poetry, but also Poe. That story, Mask of the Red Death, it's about people having a party to celebrate the plague that's burning through their city and it doesn't end well for them. And in the same way, my Mask of the Red Death is a story about realizing but in the hardest way possible that it doesn't matter how many guns you have, you just can't shoot germs. That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is really cool. That is quite a collection. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, is this, av- I would assume this is available also electronically besides the hard copy. 
Yeah, so it's it's available in a bunch of different formats. And, you know, for one thing, the unauthorized bread being turned into a TV show by Topic, which is the production company that's under the arm of the company that owns The Intercept, the online news service that was oh, yeah, to, sure. the, the Snowden leaks. Um, and then the, yeah. uh, there's an audiobook edition from Macmillan Audio read by Will Wheaton, among others, that uh, is right now nice. uh, exclusively available on Google Play. Um, Google launched a competitor to Audible that, unlike Audible, is DRM-free, which means that you can play it on any device and you can unlock it and you can nice. give it away and you can do other things that, that Amazon doesn't let you do. And so I, I let them use this to promote their launch. And then it's available as an ebook. And like all my ebooks, it's DRM free. And both the audiobooks and ebooks can be had from my website as well, where, where I act as a retailer for my publisher. I, I built this little online bookstore where instead of buying the ebooks from Amazon, you buy them from me. And I take the 25% that Amazon would normally get. And I take the other 70% and send to my publisher. And then they take the 30% that the author gets and send it back to me. So I act as a retailer. <laughs> and every time you buy them from me, I get about twice as much money as I would if you bought them from Amazon. Well, that's a good deal. I like that. It's good for you, too. It's, and it's fair. I mean, you're the creator yeah. after all. That's right. I have to ask you if, uh, yeah, I have to ask you if you plan on returning to the world of Little Brother and Homeland again. Yeah, as it happens, I've just finished the third book. Uh, I turned it in just before. Oh, Christmas. excellent. It's, I've just I've done the second edit pass. It probably needs a third. We're still trying to figure out the title. The working title was Crypto Wars. Uh, my editor thinks that it's, nice. uh, that's a nonfiction book title. So we're tossing around a bunch of other mm -hmm. ideas. I kind of like Zero Day or maybe Hopeful Monster, uh, which is a term Darwin used to describe uh, mutations. Um, it's the story of uh, hmm. Masha, the, the young woman who's at the beginning and the end of the other two books. Uh, yes. who works for surveillance contractors and for the DHS. And it's about uh, how she comes to do that and, and what kind of toll that takes on her. And it's a novel for adults. The idea is to age up with the audience from Little Brother and, and, and give them some more adult fare. Wow, that sounds great. I'm glad you're returning to that. Uh, that uh, that's another fascinating world that you've created. And uh, it's definitely worth visiting and staying a while, maybe, and kind of uh, you know looking around a bit. <laughs> it's yeah, been absolutely good. fantastic to, yeah it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you uh, i mean i think you're a very important voice in science fiction because you are uh or speculative fiction if you wish and because you're attacking a lot of the problems that are facing us now and uh and and being accessible so that a person reading your stories doesn't have to project too much imagination into it and instead saying things like Boy, that could really happen, and uh, mm. and that's a lot more scary <laughs> to uh, well, to me. You. And I think it, it hammers the point. I really appreciate that kind of uh, fiction, and uh, I mean, science fiction's always done cautionary tales well, and mm -hmm. it's good to kind of bridge the gap a little bit and not make it too far out there, so everybody can can get into it. So. I appreciate that yeah. that you're doing. Well, thank you. It's, you know, thank you. That those are very kind words. And, and I appreciate the chance to come on and talk about it with you. Absolutely. And when the third book is out, <laughs> I think we want to talk again. I hope we get that chance too. Absolutely. All right. And that's Corey Doctorow. It's called Radicalized. Very interesting four novellas that really hit home to what's going on in the world and especially America and what we're facing these days. So urge everybody to read it and kind of uh, look at it and digest it 
and just look around and see the matches. <laughs> but anyway, wow. uh, we appreciate we appreciate you being on, and I want to thank you all for listening to Sci-Fi Talk. Until next time, this is Tony Tolado. Take care. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk. <laughs>